after this week, for sure. But we give praise. Uh, we are a unique lot. You know, we don't do it exactly the way everybody else does it. So whenever someone new comes, they have to see our strangeness as led by your pastors. So uh, we're thankful for Nicholas here. And we are thankful for Mrs. Jeannie Smith, who has played tirelessly for the 18 plus years that I've been here. So 20. Uh, she is our uh, faithful organist and choir director for all these many years, and I give praise to God for her. I want to point out to you that we are in Isaiah, so please turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible with you or you lack an electronic version of the Scripture, turn to 573 in your pew Bible. And it's important for you to have the passage in front of you. Um, when preaching or teaching through Isaiah, uh, the listener really needs to have the text in front of them. It's, it will help you as I walk through the passage with you. Uh, the language is very poetic. You, if you haven't read it ahead of time, uh, it is the kind of uh, portion of Scripture you need to read over and over again. So hopefully it'll help when you have it there right in front of you as I walk through the text with you. Uh, to begin, though, I'll just read the first portion of the passage and the last portion. Uh, there is a repeating formula or theme that captures each of the four sections that I am looking at with you. Uh, now, you will recall Isaiah ministered over a 40-year span, or a 50-year span, 50 years as a prophet. Uh, prophecy and being a minister in this light would have been a depressing job, a difficult job. You're calling uh, a nation uh, to repentance, a nation already under judgment, certain judgment. I mean, it's right at their doorstep. I mean, here in chapter 9, you have the Assyrian armies making their way southward towards Israel, and then uh, eventually even reaching into Judah, the southern portion of Israel. And we have a word of warning to them as a whole, not just the north, but the south as well, as we will see in the first verses, starting in verse 8. We see in this passage the reason for God's discipline and judgment coming upon Israel. We see in this passage what God hates the most. It's that serious. It's something that certainly should resonate throughout the generations and the years as we look in on what God moves Isaiah to say to his people. So here, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word as I start at verse 8 in chapter 9. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now the last verses of the passage we are focused on this morning starts at verse 1 of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. 
For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, as someone has said, pride is an ugly monster, a hideous beast. It is the tyrant of self unleashed on those closest to us. Lord, as we read of the pride of a nation, of a people, a pride that led Israel to rebellious sin, I ask for you to convict us personally and corporately by your Spirit in ways that we have fallen into pride. Awaken us from the, to the areas of our lives where we are holding on to pride and arrogance. I pray that you would give us a new appreciation and, and a love for Christ who taught us true humility who gave us true humility in himself. Lord, please give us honesty and give us repentance where it is needed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Within the lifetime of Isaiah, there was a very stark example of being in God's favor and falling out of favor uh, in a shocking way. And the people would have been very familiar with it. The person of King Uzziah, the king who died and thus prompted, at least in human time, God moving in Isaiah to bring this message to the Israelites and to us many years later. Uzziah was a good king compared to the majority of the kings in Israel. Hezekiah, or excuse me, Uzziah was one of the best. He reigned for 50 some odd years, and most of the time he was devoted to his God and was humble before God. But in his last years, there was a stark change in him, which we have seen before as we've studied this passage. But it's helpful to know that in their time span, while they're receiving this prophecy, they would have known of an example of what happens when we fall out of humility, when we fall out of dependence upon God, when we rely upon self. In Second Chronicles, we read the story of Uzziah. Listen to what the chronicler writes. And I'll refer to this episode from time to time throughout this series because it's so relevant to us and would help us understand the minds of the readers when they first heard it. In Second Chronicles 26, listen to what is said about Uzziah. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. I want you to think about the 16-year-olds you know in your life. Um, he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. What a testimony of Uzziah's reign. But what happens towards the end of his reign is also recorded. Second Chronicles 26. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This means he brought incense from another god into the temple of his god, sort of as a peace offering among the gods, 
and the nations around him were starting to threaten. Even he had succumbed to trusting or fearing man rather than God. Even Uzziah, the one who was so used of God to bless Israel, yet in his pride thought he could oppose God's call and instruction. You know, the Bible is replete with stories like Uzziah. You can think of many of them. The first sin is really, at its root, the pride of man saying, I want to be like God. Solomon, of all people, by the Holy Spirit, wrote in Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Bible testifies to the devastation that pride brings but so does my own life. I cannot think of too many problems I have had or issues I have found myself in or relationships that have been damaged where my pride wasn't wrapped up in it. It's certainly the pride of others as well. I think if you have 99 problems, all 99 of them are because of pride. In some way, pride gets wrapped in. If it's not the initiator of the problem, it just makes it worse because we dig in. That's pride that makes us dig in. We won't admit that we're wrong. We won't stand for correction. We won't be inconvenienced. Pride claims God's good gifts as though they belong to us by our own right. Like they come from ourselves. By our own nature, we deserve them. In in a way, pride then short-circuits gratitude for what is all really a gift to us. We think we deserve it so we're not grateful. Pride sees others as lesser than self, and so pride removes our ability to encourage and bless others. Pride sees others as a tool to advance our own cause, our own ego, our own agenda, so pride dehumanizes and enslaves others to do our will. People become objects to us. Pride resents inconvenience. It cannot stand it. Why should I not have my own way? So pride sabotages patience, which is a fruit of God's spirit. Pride is never satisfied because someone else always has more than we do, and we can always think of ways that we're being wronged or we're being slighted. So pride steals our peace and it steals our joy. We're never content. Pride directs our ambition towards advancing our cause, our fame, our agenda. And it causes us to ultimately neglect or steal God's glory for ourselves, or so we think we're doing. Pride fools us into an attitude of self-reliance and leads us to prayerlessness. Why would I go to God if I can get it myself? Pride blinds us to the legitimate need of others and leads us to a lack of compassion. So self-absorbed that we don't see the needs and the sufferings of others. Pride causes us to get angry and lash out at those who get in our way which leads us to bully and abuse people. You know, the first verses of our passage in this text give us the root of Israel's problem, gives us the root of our problems. The reason for the outstretched hand of God, which is a descriptor for a parent doing discipline with their hands outstretched, that's the refrain. The reason for the outstretched hand of God's judgment is revealed in verse 9. Look there. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, 
So they say what they say and they do what they do because of the arrogance and the pride that's in their heart. Pride is damaging on many levels. Pride is an, a universal human problem. Everyone suffers from it to some degree. Pride is an inordinate self-esteem. It's an unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority and talents. The Greek word for pride is superbia. Robert Rayburn says that pride is the idolatry of the self. It is the nature of pride as competition with God, the displacing of God by the self at the center. This has led many Christian thinkers, he says, through the ages to regard pride as the mother sin and the essential element of all sin. It's so true. It, just, it fuels our other sins. So if pride didn't get you into the sin, once you're in the sin, it's, even if you won't admit it's a sin, right there, pride is, is just making it bigger and fatter. That's what it does. It feeds the sin. The worst sin of pride consists in its breathtaking dishonesty, as one author said, constructing a view of oneself in defiance of the facts. It's puffing oneself up. It's totally unreasonable, but you think it's true. I don't know if you've had this happen to you. I confess it has happened to me. I've walked away from a conversation or a time together, and I thought all I did was talk. All I did is talk about me. At the time, I thought it sounded good, but when I look back at it, you know what? It wasn't. It wasn't even true. It was in the defiance of the facts about myself that I'm bragging about myself, or I'm prideful about myself. Pride is an attitude of self-sufficiency, self-importance, and self-exaltation in relationship to God, not just other people. It's an attitude of contempt and indifference, ultimately, with everyone around you. That's why, as I propose to you on the outline, that a good proposition for what we see before us in Israel and what Isaiah is called to confront, it might be said that pride is the root of all sin. Pride causes us to turn away from God instead of turning to him. C.S. Lewis, writing on this topic, as so many Christian authors have, says it well. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Jonathan Edwards adds to this thought of Lewis by saying, spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support, of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. One more time, think about it in your own life. Whatever sin you struggle with, how does pride feed it? Usually by not allowing you to admit it. That's how deadly pride is. So it keeps you in your sin, and it even pushes you into more of it as you self-defend, as I find excuses. Pride is what prompts God's judgment. It's, it prompts his judgment on the world as the world refuses to repent of it, and God's justice is done. But it also prompts discipline, even for his own children, whom he loves, but slip into or fall into pride as well. Now, in the section before us, you'll see a refrain that happens four times. Between verse 8 of chapter 9 and verse 4 of chapter 10, four times in verse 12, in verse 17, in verse 21, and then in verse 4. They all end with this phrase. 
For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He's in the act of judging and disciplining. And everything he says will build on why it's justified, why he has the right to do it, why he's doing it. What angers God so much? Chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. This is the north and the south. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, now focusing more on the south, or on the north, excuse me, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. What's going on here? Well, their outward speech and actions are manifesting something that's in their heart. What they're saying is in defiance to God. Verse 10 is a defiant statement in the face of circumstances that God has brought about. Now, there's some debate about what the circumstances are. We know from history that in about 50 years before this, a terrible earthquake hit this portion of the the world. And it was said that God, through the prophet, was said that God sent that earthquake as a judgment, as a, pre, a prejudgment to the things that were going to come, a way to call the people back to dependence on him. So the bricks fell and, and trees were felled, and the people's response was not to repent, but rather, fine. The bricks, those cheap bricks fell, we'll put dressed ones up instead. Oh, the sycamores fell? Good, that's cheap wood. We'll, build, we'll plant cedars in its place. Others say that this isn't about an earthquake. It's just a reference to the fact that an, a, an army will come from Assyria and will, will mow down their houses and will mess up their forests. And still there's a response because this is from the hand of God that this discipline would come, whether in an earthquake or an advancing army. In both cases, the people respond to this event in verse 10. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. God may judge, but we'll build back even stronger than before. God may cause our stuff to get knocked down, but we'll just rebuild. And we'll rebuild better than before. It's almost like the inhabitants of Babel, when God told them to spread out and fill the earth, and instead, what do they do? They built a tower as tall as they could to get in God's face. So no flood could ever overtake the top of that tower. This arrogance, this pride of arrogance. Ed Young, who has a great commentary on this book, says, Here is no humility, no repentance for sin. Rather, in haughtiness and in greatness of daring of heart, they speak. I've heard people say, when something bad has happened to them, they grow defiant against God, and I'll do it without him, they'll say. That's a scary thing. Despite their obvious downward spiral, the Israelites think they are in control of their situation. They can simply respond to what God does by building back better. Pride and arrogance is what prompts God's judgment. Look at verse 11. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. You remember Rezin from a few sermons ago. One of the individual leaders of a nation that the northern kingdom allied themselves with, thinking he would provide protection from the Assyrians. Uh, Several treaties were made by the northern king to assure their safety. They didn't go to God. They didn't repent to Yahweh. They instead went to pagan nations who decried their God, who set up altars against the Israeli God, and they went to them for their security. And Rezin's one of them. But look what verse 12 tells us. After seeing that the adversaries of Rezin are raised up, the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. 
for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So the alliances that they made in rebellion to God's commands were answered as those places with whom they made these alliances fell. Their pride and the arrogance was judged. Their pride made, the, made them sense independence to the point of ignoring God's prior words and acts of judgment. Verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the one who struck them through those nations. They were the tools of God's judgment. And the people did not respond with repentance. Kind of like Pharaoh. Remember when Pharaoh ignored God's plagues one after the other? His heart hardened. The people of God ignored God's acts of discipline. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Look at verse 14. So the Lord cut off from Israel from Israel, head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day, that quickly. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is a tail. So the lofty or the elite, as well as the lowly, he cuts them both off. Anyone with influence, the leaders who are formal and those who are just walking around gaining influence, both of them will be cut off in one day. And those who guide this people have been leading them astray in verse 16. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. From lofty to the lowly, God's outstretched hand will do its work of judgment. And he always responds to pride in the same way. Thankfully, it looks smaller in our own lives, but he loves us so much that he doesn't let us exalt ourselves long in our pride. He brings us low. There's a chain of terrible events that we see forecasted in the passage. As young men are lost in battle, the misery is compounded and God's compassion is withdrawn. And this is one of the scariest things you could ever read of. When the compassion of God is withdrawn, it says in verse 17, therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men. So he won't protect them any longer. Remember, almost all Israel's battles were won simply because God supernaturally intervened. But now his delight will no longer be in preserving them in this way. Therefore, it says in verse 17, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. As the young men fall in battle, there will be orphans and there will be widows and God will allow for the course of action to take place For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Alec Moyer, in his commentary, says of this difficult portion of the text, Wrath is not inflicted without the reasons for wrath being made clear. The Lord is not a God of capricious fury, Behind his judgments lies the examination of the evidence. You know, as we look at this passage and think of his judgment, we usually think of his judgment as sending something, right? Sending a calamity, sending an earthquake, an advancing army, whatever it might be, a sickness like in the case of Uzziah, who ultimately died of leprosy. But God's judgment is not always characterized by his causing calamity. 
God's judgment happens when he removes his restraining grace. God's gracious care for humanity includes holding back all sorts of evil. If God would remove his hand from the earth, his, his restraining hand, all manner of wickedness would break loose. As bad as it is, it would be far worse if he just restrained his hand of grace. God, in effect, restrains absolute wickedness most of the time. But in judgment, God will sometimes let wicked people run their wicked course. And that's what Isaiah describes starting in verse 18 in some horrifying words. Verse 18 says, For wickedness burns like fire. Wickedness has its own life, and it, it burns and it consumes. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. That's what wickedness does. And if it's unchecked, it will keep going. Verse 19, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. He just lets the wickedness go. He lets what they do go on. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. When wickedness is unleashed, when God does not put his restraining hand, we devour one another. That's what we do. Verse 20, they slice meat on the right, but they're still hungry. And they devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. They turn in on themselves. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. These are two tribes in the northern kingdom. They turn on one another, and together they are against Judah, the south. Everybody's against each other. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. God hates pride. Pride causes arrogance. Arrogance promotes sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin causes us to be estranged from God. God hates pride because it ruins fellowship with man, but God hates pride ultimately because it is an affront to the glory that only he deserves. We also see in this passage a theme that is repeated throughout the book. I just want to stop on it briefly, but I wanted to point it out because one of the fruits of a prideful society and prideful people are found in what the Israelites were accused of doing in the first four verses of chapter 10. Themes that will keep coming up as we work through this book. Pride promotes injustice and oppression. Pride and arrogance are manifested by what is said and then also by what is done. And Isaiah specifically calls out the things that they have been doing. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees... And the writers who keep writing oppression. This is in reference to those who were the rulers, the governors of Israel. They were writing laws and decrees that were ultimately bringing oppression and judgment to those who were weakest in their society. The alliances themselves with other countries would have brought slavery into their place. It would have brought terrible hardship for those who could not defend themselves. So though they thought they were defending and securing the nation's security, they were selling out the weakest among them. The ones Jesus say are the, says are the least of these. And that's a sign of a truly prideful place when it sells out the least of these. Verse 2, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people in their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. They, they gain their gains from the people who cannot provide for themselves. Again, we'll come back to this 
throughout our study of Isaiah. But please see how much pride plays into this behavior towards other people where injustice and oppression become characteristic of a given society. Unjust laws hurt everyone. The rulers were bringing about a situation that was hurting the weakest, the ones who needed the most protection, the needy, the poor, the widows, the orphans. Exposing their prideful fruit, he asks them some questions. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar. You make all these alliances. You make all these laws. What will you do when the ruin comes? Your laws won't save you then. Your alliances won't help you then. What will you do? Another question in verse 3. To whom will you flee for help? Who's next on your list of alliances that's going to help you? And where will you leave your wealth? The thing that you're trying to safeguard at the expense of the least of these, what are you going to do with it when it's taken away? He'll tell us what. Verse 4, Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And here's the refrain again for the last time in this section. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. This passage reminds us of how damaging human pride is. Again, to quote Robert Rayburn, pride is the idolatry of the self. It is the nature of pride as competition with God, the displacing of God by the self at the center. What is the response? What is the answer? Where do we flee from our pride? Isaiah gives the answer. In Isaiah, laden between all these passages of sure coming judgment, is the answer for our pride, and it's our salvation. It's the same salvation for the Israelites. They just look forward to it. We look back upon it. They look forward to Messiah, the provision of the Messiah, the provision of Messiah to pay for their sins, Uh, brought low by the expose of God about their pride, They are compelled to run to Messiah. They're compelled to throw themselves upon the grace of God who will be evidenced in Messiah to come for the Israelites. For us, as we contemplate our pride, and we know it's true, we stand convicted and we throw ourselves upon Christ. The humility of Christ and what he has provided for us in his person and in his work is the antidote for pride. Now, I want to say this very clearly. I don't mean that because Jesus was humble, we could be like Jesus. We should be humble like Jesus. That is a secondary fruit of what we really need when I say that the humility of Christ is the antidote for pride. What I mean is the humility of Christ, God the Son, to submit himself to humanity, to place upon himself your sin and my sin, all our pride and guilt and its sinfulness upon himself, his humility to do this, and then go to the cross to take all of God's wrath so we would not have to take it. When he did this on the cross for us, that is the ultimate sign of humility, and we need Christ for us to be saved from our pride. Isaac Watts, when he wrote one of his great hymns, when he thought about what Jesus did for us, when he thought about the humility of Christ expressed to us in his work, He said, when I survey 
the wondrous cross on which the prince, the prince of glory died. My richest gain, the greatest thing I've ever done, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Paul, writing to the Philippians, and to us, says in Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you can have this. It has to be in Christ. You have to be united to Christ by faith so that his work is counted to us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hoarded or kept just to himself. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see how the humility of Christ is the antidote for pride? Because he did what he did, we can be saved. Thankfully, Jesus died for my pride as surely as he died for my other many sins. And so when you and I look upon Jesus and his work on the cross by faith, our pride is the first of our sinful burdens to come off our back, as one author said. The same author also said and reminds us, the cross tells me in vivid, unmistakable terms that I have sinned and fallen short, that I need to be saved from my sin. The cross also shows me with no uncertainty that I cannot save myself. If I could rescue myself, why would Jesus have shed his blood for me? The cross shows me the person who is of infinite value, not me, but the Lord Jesus, whose blood alone was sufficient to ransom all of God's people from all of their sin. The cross shows us that it is Christ who is to be lifted up, not me, not us. The cross shows us that people need to be drawn to Christ and not us. The cross shows me that love and compassion for others are possible even in the face of great suffering and injustice. The cross shows me that the essence of love is selfless sacrifice for the good of others. The cross shows me that my kingdom and glory are not central, but rather must be nailed to the cross. The cross shows me that I am crucified to the world and the world to me. The cross shows us that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How do we draw upon the humility of Jesus to combat pride? First of all, it's the gospel. And you're never too old to hear the gospel again and again and again. It will always remove your pride. When you survey the wondrous cross, you will be compelled, no matter how many times you've heard it, how many times you've been confronted by it, you will, be con- you will be absolutely compelled to throw yourself at Christ in total humility, knowing you cannot, of anything you do, save yourself. So the means of God's grace to bring us his gospel over and over and over again in our reading, in our contemplation, in the preaching of the church, the teaching of the church, the reading of his word, and in the sharing of his sacraments as we come to the table. Who could come to the table of the Lord and think we bring something that merits our coming? Everything about what the table says, it's all him. 
We just simply receive what he has given us. I remember the first time that we bought a house. It's when we came to Kansas City so many years ago now. And I remember asking a realtor, well, there's a couple different places we like. Which one should we pick? And he told us that there are three important things that you should consider when you buy a house. You know what they are, right? Everybody here has bought a house. The first one's location. The second one, location. And the third one is location. Then I thought to myself here recently, as that came back in my, into my mind, of something that Augustine said that was similar, that made me chuckle, but so true. Augustine said when describing godliness or growing in spiritual maturity, something we all desire, that there are three parts to it, really. First, humility. Second, guess what? Humility. And the third one, Augustine said, is humility. Next week is Reformation Sunday, and I will bring a a special, special message that recounts the reason for and the importance of the Reformation. But in a nutshell, the church and her leaders at that time had grown proud and arrogant. That happens all the time. It can happen to us. It's not as though it's not a constant challenge, but it was at its apex in history at that moment. As it was personified in one person and one governance and one way of looking at it, gone a long way away from where the scriptures expressed who Jesus is and was. The church leaders themselves in the time of the Reformation didn't have the humility of the gospel of Christ themselves, so they couldn't preach and teach it to the people and were powerless in so many ways. It was a time of great earthly power for the Roman church, but a time of spiritual famine and weakness. There's a story told about Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century theologian living in the middle of the 1200s. He visited the Vatican several times. He was celebrated by Rome, although Rome didn't follow much of his teaching. They knew he was highly regarded as a scholar in a time that there was quite a bit of famine in scholarship. So he came to Rome and visited the Vatican. Some of the Pope's closest cardinals showed him around. The Pope himself was with him for a part of this time. The Pope at that time, interesting, was named Innocent the Fourth. Now that's an ironic name for a Pope who issued a decree to allow for the torturing of anyone he said was a heretic. And as Aquinas walked, he saw the gold and the precious jewels that they were everywhere around him. And the Pope said to him, at least he is said to have said to him, referring to himself as Peter's successor, that's how the papacy gets its Credibility. They say they're just succeeding the apostle Peter. The Pope was supposed to have turned to Aquinas and referring to himself as Peter's successor, laughingly and pridefully said, Peter can no longer say that silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas angrily replied, Nor can he say, Rise up and walk. Aquinas was right to observe that the pride and arrogance of the church had short-circuited the power of God there. I close with what J.C. Ryle said. Pride is the oldest sin in the world. Indeed, it was before the world. Satan and his angels fell by pride. They were not satisfied with their first situation and status. Thus, pride stocked hell with its first inhabitants. Pride threw Adam out of paradise. 
He was not content with the place that God assigned him. He tried to raise himself and fell. Thus, sin, sorrow, and death entered by pride. And finally, and most importantly, I think the best statement by Ryle on this subject. Pride sits in all our hearts by nature. We are born proud. Pride makes us rest content with ourselves, think we are good enough as we are, keep us from taking advice, refuse the gospel of Christ, and turn everyone to his own way. Let's pray. Father, we see the sin of Israel and recognize how it prompted your judgment. But Lord, we are also very cognizant of our own pride and pray for repentance, pray for a new appreciation of the gospel. Lord, break us down that we might fall upon Christ afresh. And Lord, may the fruits of humility and not pride fill this place and fill our relationships and fill our dealings with each other. Please, Lord, make us look upon our Savior and see the mind of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but Lord, we thank you that he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that your sacrificial death has given us life. Thank you for this. Pray for your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond by singing the first two verses of 528. Let's stand and sing the first two.